Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manning. Today, we're bringing you a conversation within the third area of our model of data science, the area of systems. Systems is defined as the technological infrastructure that is required to carry out the practice of data science. Often associated with data engineering or machine learning engineering, the area of systems is concerned with both the hardware and software that supports data science. You'll get a more detailed description of systems at the start of the conversation, so we'll leave it there for now. In addition to the systems component, today's episode examines the recently published paper entitled From Biomedical Cloud Platforms to Microservices, Next Steps in Fair Data and Analysis. And to talk about this paper are two of its authors, Phil Bourne and Nathan Sheffield. Phil and Nathan both work within the domain of biomedicine, so a lot of their conversation focuses on that space. However, they take a fairly high-level view of the systems underlying data science initiatives, and so anyone who utilizes cloud services, remote computing, and APIs should glean knowledge from this discussion. And so with that, here's Phil Bourne and Nathan Sheffield. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Phil Bourne. I'm the Dean of the School of Data Science here at the University of Virginia. I'm also a professor in biomedical engineering, which is actually part of the engineering and the School of Medicine. Um, prior to that, uh, I was the first chief uh, data officer uh, the, uh, at the National Institutes of Health. So it's delight, a delight for me today to talk to Nathan Sheffield, who is now going to introduce himself. Hi, um, I'm Nathan Sheffield. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Virginia. Um, I'm a computational biologist. So my, my background from my undergraduate training and my PhD are both in computational biology. And I started here at UVA in 2016. And my group works on um, genomics. So I'm, I'm a faculty member in the Center for Public Health Genomics. And we work on a lot of data-related stuff, working to uh, understand these you know, new, large-scale genomic data sets that, have, that are being produced now. Um, and a big part of my group also works on more sort of infrastructure type work. So building the scientific computing things that we need in order to process these, this kind of large scale genomic data sets. And so that's kind of what I think led, led us to this interaction here is, is more of that kind of infrastructure side of things. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I, you know, I'm honored to be part of the paper that it's really the nexus of what we're talking about today that is really your brainchild. Um, a few of us just sort of tagged along. Um, but, and we'll get to that in a minute, but set, let me just perhaps set a little context for that in the it, context in the, in, in, with respect to data science and how we think about data science. Uh, this series, in fact, is, is built around uh, our model of data science, which we call the four plus one, uh, and, and, and has different names, but that's, that's one that sticks. And it's really the four are the four major elements of data science, and the plus one are all the practical applications. Uh, we're going to focus a little today on practical applications that relate to bioscience, which is both of our backgrounds. But uh, within the school, obviously, we're doing much broader than that. But the four areas, are, you know, the, the obvious one is analytics, and that's what people often think about when we talk about data science. But there are three others which are, are really important. Uh, value is one of them, which really talks about ethics and justice and policy and all the things that happen and bias in data and so on. Uh, and then an, another one is design, which is really around human computer uh, interactions, among other things. And then the one today that we're really focused on uh, is systems, which is really the underlying components that allow us to do data science 
and perhaps the specializations we need within the hardware and software systems that we're using to uh, actually make the most uh, of data. So that's, that's really what we're going to focus on today. Um, so perhaps, Nathan, you could just begin with just giving a sense of how, what, what was the thought processes which led to the origination of this paper, which, as I said, I'm honored to be part of. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the sort of ideas came out of just my experience dealing with, you know, speaking of systems, dealing with the systems of how research computing is happening you know, now in biomedical you know, areas. And um, it's, it's really a dynamic area right now. Things are changing really rapidly over the last five years, 10 years. Um, I mean, if you think about how research computing happened 15 years ago versus 10 years ago, five years ago today, you know, it's not the same. St stuff's different. And so that's part of, I think, what, mo what motivated this is that um, as I'm trying to just get things done and, and trying to grapple with how, how do I find, you know, where should I run my compute jobs? Where should I get the data that I need? And, and how can I make those things fit? As the amount of data has increased, it's, it's leading to new challenges. So that's sort of the nexus of it. Um, it's dealing with those challenges and trying to find ways to to solve these things, which I think a lot of people are doing. So, you know, uh, no one can see me, thank goodness, but I, I mean, I've been around this business for a long time. And I guess what I'm always struck by is the sort of the, the expansion and contraction in a, in, a, in a way that relates to uh, centralization versus di distributed computing environments. And, uh, you know, we've gone through various phases of that. I, I started when there was just a big, a few big mainframes, uh, and then you know, the, with the advent of the mini computer, that changed you know things to some degree, and then the advent of workstations and PCs and changed it again. But at the same time, the, there was certain centralization of efforts, particularly as it related to data and other things, uh, and then you know it, it's kind of gone back and forward to some degree. Uh, things like the open science grid for computing really is a you know truly distributed environment, and then you have things like which obviously the, you know in a way that that sort of is the I wouldn't say the counter to what you're you're about to describe to us, but it is is a piece of it, and that is cloud computing, which really is in some sense is in principle at least is neither centralized or distributed. It's just there. <laughs> uh, maybe disagree with that. But uh, that, to me, is sort of the, how I see the, the landscape that's evolved. I don't know if that resonates with you or not. Yeah, yeah. I think that you sort of brought up, when, when I think about this, I think you kind of bringing up the, the technical side of things or the computing side of things and the way it evolves. And, and that's, I, I think, a big part of it is just, um, I guess, those models Right for how we think about research computing, whether it's centralized or whether it's distributed or, th or things like this. Um, but the other, that I feel like that's one side of things. But the other side of things is just the amount of data, right? And so they kind of work together in the sense that as if you if the data is small, like if there's not that much data, then it might make so more sense to just spread it out or duplicate it, and then you know distributed computing is sort of makes sense. Um, 
But if the data, if there's tons of data, then it becomes really hard to move, right? And then so you need to bring your computing power to the data, and this leads to a centralization. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that there's this these kind of centralization versus distribution on the compute side just with compute power. But there's a similar dynamic going on in data as well. And so it's it's interesting to see, to see how those like integrate with one another. Yeah, no, right. I, I mean, I agree with that completely. I, and, you know, I think that the, the difference, of course, is, of course, why we have data science is that there's just so much data, disparate data from so many different sources now. So it, it's, it's, it becomes a driver unto itself in ways that even bigger than it ever was before. Yeah. It's always, you know, it's hard for us to put that into context because in genomics, it's been around data. In a sense, to some degree, um, you know, I'm, I'm putting up my hands here with question, uh, with uh, exclamation, not with quotation marks around the notion of big data. But genomics has always kind of been thought of as a big as big data, and it was sort of a driver in in, in how we thought about this. And that actually led to centralization of data in the sense of around you know uh, various resources uh, that are supported at, uh, you know nationally and internationally. So that's that's all interesting. And then the, the cloud came along. When I was at NIH, and this is a segue into your work, basically, is that we pushed a lot on this idea of the commons, which you have interestingly, to some degree, pushed back on, uh, and which we which is great because it turns out that three of the authors of the paper that <laughs> were all people who pushed the commons, but we were all happy to be part of the discussion that you're you're going to lead in a second. But just to you know, the original concept. And I'll then ask you why you think it's uh, it's not correct or it it needs modification. Was the idea of the commons was really this sort of simple idea that because of cloud services, you you have this you wouldn't this data would essentially be ubiquitous, and and the as would be the the ability to compute on it, and so the idea was that it would all be done essentially in one place that was essentially unknown to you, um, and after you computed something in the commons the output of that would potentially also be in the commons. And so it would become this kind of catch-all for uh, the, you know, the various kinds of computation and problems you were trying to solve. But what you point out in this paper, which you know, we have to agree with, is not really how it worked out. So maybe that's a sort of lead you into what you think did happen and where you see what your work as described in this paper fits in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when you use the word commons, I, in the paper we also use this word platform. And I, these these words are kind of, I think, a little bit nebulous and not necessarily, you know, maybe there's sometimes synonyms, sometimes there's subtle differences, but basically describing the idea of um, some kind of a compute environment where there's data resources and there's computing resources and there's specific tools, specific software. And, and so you can go there and do something, right? Do some compute on this data. Um, so what? So I guess they're commons or they're platforms, and maybe there's some subtle differences between those two concepts. I would just but, say that, yeah, it, uh, I don't personally, perhaps there are, but I'm not smart enough to see what they are. But, you know, I think that the difference is uh, that there's platforms and then there's sort of pipes. And the pipes are like silos of computation. The idea of platforms is that they're uh, more ubiquitous than that. They they're essentially cover more ground, whether it be in data or the ability to compute. 
than you would otherwise have. And I think what you point out is, in reality, that's not what's happened. Yeah. Well, yeah. So getting on, I guess, to try to answer that question, I, I feel like the idea behind creating commons really is a good idea. It's it's that the data, there's so much data now that we can't possibly distribute it. So if we have it all in one place and then allow people to come, that solves a lot of problems. It solves the problem of distributing these huge data sets that are hard to distribute. It also solves problems of reproducibility because we can sort of control this environment. It makes it simpler. People don't have to run their own infrastructure. So I think all these are, are great motivations. And I think this is what has motivated a huge investment in these kinds of environments. But then now getting to, I think, where, where you're going with this, the issue is that there, there can't really be just one because there's, diff there's too many different needs that people have and people will always need to integrate across commons, right? And so that makes it actually more challenging in the end because you end up building these sort of individual they almost become silos in and of themselves. And it's just, and, and what we argue in, in the papers, it's kind of an emergent um, property of a system where a lot of people are working on commons, or working on these kinds of platforms, um, because they, they start to become inward focused. They start to become focused on developing new features because they want to attract users. They want to increase the amount of data that they provide to increase their value. And so the focus is really on making that resource as valuable as possible. And the, the focus isn't really on making it connectable or interoperable with other similar resources. But if you end up with a lot of different groups building these kinds of resources, then, you, then what you end up with is the environment that I feel like we're, we're kind of in or entering or maybe already in the midst of today, which is that there's lots of different common systems or, or biomedical platforms. And each one is kind of sponsored by and produced by a different group with a different kind of unique use case, right? And they're all kind of building those with the intent to try to solve problems for that group of users. And it's great if you can do everything you need to do in one of those. But if you find yourself needing to work with two or three or four or 10 of them, then you end up in this situation where you need to learn and understand all of these systems and they are all slightly different. They might be built on different underlying cloud infrastructure, right? So they're on different clouds. One's on Google Cloud, one's on AWS, one's on Azure. And so you've got now different billing accounts for all of these that you need to, ma to manage. Getting the data out of one and into a different one in order to do some kind of an integrative analysis becomes, you know, maybe impossible. Right, because the data ha have to stay within one of the commons. And so this is, I think, w what sort of led to, to this paper was just the realization that this yeah. is leading to some new challenges, right? So I know you're itching to talk about the paper itself, because uh, we haven't even actually w mentioned the keyword yet. Right. Uh, but uh, we will, in, you will in a second. But I, I would just say, before we get there, that, you know, as you know, we recently uh, published a policy forum in science, which actually, with, with some of the same authors of this paper, with the notion that to try and address in a different way some of the, the, the problems you've raised, which is really about having more consistency across these platforms, across agencies that fund them, uh, and so on. The reality is that that, you know, that's 
to my, uh, given the response that the forum got, I'd say, <laughs> which was virtually none, uh, I'd say that, you know, it's, it's kind of, that's just, it's, that's too big a leap. It's just not going to happen. Some elements of that may happen. But, you know, to be honest, uh, uh, the various agencies who fund computing resources and the private sector all going to agree on a set of particular ways of doing things? No. What you're proposing, I think, uh, is an alternative, which is really interesting. So why don't you tell us about that? Okay. So I don't, yeah, and I don't, so I'm not sure I would say it's an alternative. I guess it is an alternative. But in some sense, it's just a little bit orthogonal and could coexist. And we can get into yeah, that in, I, in yeah, more I, depth. I, well, well, yes, I, I misspoke. I agree. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get yep. to that. So go ahead. Yeah, but I guess the, the point here is that we want to talk about microservices and how microservices could potentially be, in some ways, I guess, an antidote to some of the challenges that, um, that we just talked about. So maybe we can just talk a little about what what you know what we mean by microservices. Right. So uh, I I like to just you know when defining microservices look back to the word itself, microservices, and try to figure out what it means just from that. And so what, what we're really talking about is there's two components: the micro component and the services component, right? And by micro we just mean something very small. So in contrast to you know a commons or a or a platform, you know, a biomedical cloud platform, which might be trying to do lots of different things, right? Provide compute, provide big, useful data sets, provide software workflows that are actually installed, and you can come and run stuff, and you can analyze, and you can do everything there. A microservice is kind of on the other end of the spectrum in that it's trying not to do a lot of things. It's trying to do just one thing, one very simple thing, right? That's the micro part. And then the service part is bringing, I guess, bringing to mind the idea of something that's, that's not running locally, something that's not sort of me doing it. It's, it's something provided by someone else. So it sort of invokes this idea of something happening remotely, or it might not even be remotely. I mean, it might be like local on my computer, but it's like it's a different instance that's, that's handling that. So taken together, you know, I think of a microservice as a small task that's, that can be run you know, by something else and sort of used by me and called by me. And so th there's some interface there that's allowing me to interact with it. So often this is happening over some kind of an API. So I might be able to like execute some kind of a remote procedure or retrieve some data from some remote service, from some remote server somewhere. And it's just not going to do any, anything huge. It's going to just do something simple. Yeah. Actually, the analogy you, you draw in the paper, which I like a lot because I've been around long enough to be, I wouldn't say at the beginning of the Unix revolution, but uh, pretty close to it. Uh, and that I just remember, you know, I mean, you, there are elements in microservices in, in sort of the, 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 the small and simple components that make up a Unix system beyond the kernel. Uh, so uh, and I think it, there's the analogy there. And I, I just remember actually being involved in writing books around Unix, there was a great book that was like Unix one-liners, which was actually this idea of piping together a whole series of very simple components to make a very powerful application, essentially, all in one line, uh, one command line in a Unix system. So, I mean, I, I, that's kind of the analogy that I draw in my head. I don't, I don't know if you, I, I think you see yeah. it that way. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think we even wrote, we even quoted in this paper from an early book about um, Unix, about how the power of a system comes 
more from the relationships among programs than from the programs themselves. Many Unix programs do quite trivial tasks in isolation, but combined with other programs become general and useful tools. And from my perspective, that Unix philosophy is is part of the enduring legacy of Unix. Like that's why it's still here, you know, yeah. however many five decades later, operating in much the same way as well. I mean, you know, things have evolved, of course, but like the ecosystem is the yeah. same, right? The philosophy is the same. The philosophy is the same. And, th and that is the philosophy of microservices. It's, it's just a re, it's kind of a rediscovery. I don't know if rediscovery is like a re-renewal of that philosophy just in a different framework. Instead of on the command line where the connection is the pipe, right, that can take the output of one of these, you know, independently trivial tools, but, you know, when we pipe things together and, and we can build an ecosystem, the microservices, we're now doing this sort of with web, so the, the the web, like HTTP, these are the these kind of protocols are like the the pipes, right? That yeah. are connecting microservices, and so um, you can build really powerful web applications through you know by just piecing together microservices. This is sort of a systems way, you know, getting getting back to this idea of systems, a systems way of thinking about an application and breaking it down into those individual components and then focusing on how they interact with one another. I think part of the value that you get from that is a reusability, right? Because if you just design an application that doesn't follow that philosophy, then the components of that application can't be then reused for other applications, right? Yeah. But if you design an application out of small components that independently do something that is sort of well-defined, then that component can now be reused in another application. And so it makes building applications and interoperability across applications much simpler. Yeah. You mentioned, I mean, you, you, we're talking about the application piece here, which is really the compute piece. But earlier, you also mentioned the, 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 how data fits into this system, into the ecosystem. So, and you have some interesting ideas in the paper for uh, how, we, how we think about data as well. So do you want to elaborate on that aspect of it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's an interesting comment. I think maybe to pose that question in another way, how do how do microservices relate to data, right? Yeah. And so I think that you can kind of think of data similarly to how, what we were just describing. Sometimes we think of data as like a, this giant blob that lives somewhere, right? And we can go and maybe download that giant blob and then analyze it. And so maybe that's sort of like the monolithic approach to data. But an alternative way to look at it would be, could we index that data in some way, some way make it possible to just, you know, a, grab small pieces of it, right? So kind of like, I don't know, I don't know, micro data, if that really makes sense, but that's sort of the idea, right? But so without losing the context of the larger data. Yeah, well, and it depends on your use case, right? So for some use cases, you might need 100% of everything. And if you do, then, well, there's not much you can do about that. You get you got to have all the data. But actually, I think there's a lot of use cases for which we don't actually need all the data. What we want is either, you know, piece, specific pieces of data. So we call those data slices in this paper. So that might just be, like, specific rows in your table. And it might even be, you know, a lot of rows, but it's not all the rows, right? And the more general and the bigger the data become, then the more likely it is that your use case only needs a subset, only needs certain rows in that matrix, say, for example. 
Or the other way that we can think about, I guess, retrieving the data in you know smaller bits is through looking at summaries of the data. And so, like for a lot of use cases, well, we don't necessarily need all the underlying raw data, right? What we really want is some kind of a processed version of it. So, in the paper, we talk about this kind of funnel model of data, where you have raw data that's very large, and then you might have some processed data that's that's still kind of large, but not that large. And then you might have like summary level data that's very small. And so, there's always there's there's somewhere along that spectrum that the data becomes small, and and for some tasks that might be enough. So, the challenge mm-hmm. becomes how much data do I actually need? And how can we process the data and then make it available through microservices, right? Like through small function calls that just retrieve either subsets of the raw data or subsets of summarized versions of the data, right? And I think if we can do that, then we sort of view data almost the same way we view an application, where through access to whatever little chunks we need, we might be able to um, come up with increased interoperability right in on the data side of it. Yeah. I mean it, it it's interesting too from the point of view of another aspect of how we think about systems within the school of data science is uh, in aspects around security uh, as it relates to data and, and the applications that run that, on that data. So it, in data slicing in that the way you're describing it can actually also address some of the cybersecurity issues and the privacy issues by only allowing those rows that don't necessarily, for example, just making it very simple, that actually identify a patient, for example, in a system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can see, I can certainly see merits in that. Yeah, and this actually, the data security, I think, is a really interesting point because this this is another, I think, motivation for the sort of commons environments is that if the data is controlled access than having it in a centralized location, right, and making people come there to analyze it allows us to control it better. So that, that sort of, I see that motivation for, for building platforms. And so somebody might argue, well, well, if you're allowing the data to leave, then you're no longer controlling it, right? And so there's some truth to that. But I guess the, the sort of counterpoint to that is that with microservices, through some of these modern authentication frameworks like OAuth to you can really nicely you know, authenticate and authorize people to certain pieces of data, right? like you say. And so you can allow data to move while still controlling access to it. So that's definitely possible and you know, is commonly done. So it's, it's not the case, I think, that, that the microservices approach is, you know, is not good for security. It's just that you have to think about right. it a little differently. And I, and I think, like you said, actually, it might be the case that the raw data we have to control, but the slices or the summary level data is we can make that available. And so if you just put it all on a cloud platform and say everybody using anything always has to come here, then you, then you lose the ability for, for making publicly available some right. version of your data right? that's going to encourage use of that data. Right. There's always some summary level that, you know, that, yeah. that could be publicly available. And that, I mean, that's absolutely critical to data scientists to have access to the data. Right. So, yeah, it works. So uh, are there, I mean, this is in, in some ways still quite formative. 
would you say, do you have applications already that you would point to that you would, from your mind are, are either representative of microservices or close? I mean, there's, yeah, sure. I think there's a lot. Let me just, here's like a simple example. We could create a service that um, if you, if, you know, you could look up a, you could look up information about a gene, say. So let's say there's, I don't know, a doctor or a genetic counselor that gets back a report from a patient who's come in and done some like some kind of genomic analysis and they, there's some list of mutations and identify some gene and, the, and the, the counselor or even a patient wants to like learn more about that gene. So a microservice could just take as input a gene and could sort of look up some kind of data information about that gene. So maybe at the more abstract level, it's sort of a doctor looking up information about this gene, right? It's a simple lookup system. Something like you'd type that into Google or whatever, but un underlying those is actually some kind of a service running that people can then build tools on top of, right? You reminded me of, I'm not, uh, I haven't been tracking it recently, but there was this notion of beacons where uh, that came out of the uh, GA4GH, the Global Alliance yeah, for that's, that's Genome right. Health. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with those. Uh, but, but it was basically the idea that you, you, that people had all this human genetic variant information, and you could you couldn't access that information for privacy reasons, but you could make a service call to actually determine what a particular base call was at a certain point in the chromosome. Yeah, um, and you you know you could do that uh, across multiple resources, so you could build up a picture of the level of variation in that particular position across. Uh, human population, and you could potentially get other forms of information—not patient patient information, but things like, you know, dem uh, racial, uh, you know, uh, heretic heretical type of information that relating to disease and things like that. So, I mean, it, I hadn't thought about it before, but that to me is, uh, a you know, a, and that was quite successful. There was a instance which, where if uh, there was a paper that came out which showed if you actually went to a single resource and you actually queried uh, the, that resource enough times, you could actually in identify individuals within that resource. Uh, so that you know, there's there's always one always has to. That's what we teach in data sites. You always have to be out look on the lookout for these uh, unethical and nefarious uh, uses. Uh, of data. Yeah. In the end, they stop that by limiting the number of calls you could make to a given resource. I see. So, but anyway, that's that's, that's getting into the weeds. But uh, but actually, the, what you bring up is kind of, I think, where I was going to go with the gene example, because you sort of brought up the example of variance. But these kinds of, these examples are a little bit more like interpretation. But you could imagine similar kinds of things that, you know, a pipeline uses. So we run some analysis and we identify some genes that are of interest in this analysis and, and we look up for those genes where their location is on the genome, say, right? So these are simple things that, I mean, that kind of thing you could easily just download gene annotations and, and look it up that way. But it's also something that, it's the kind of thing that you could have a service that just handled that, right? And mm -hmm. then all different kinds of tools that needed to say, look up locations of a gene they can use this service. And these kinds of services actually already exist for, for basic things like this. So I, I don't, you know, I think what we're proposing here is not 
it's not a new idea. You know, microservices are, are in use, they're active, they're... Right. In a way, what you described, just sort of go back to the notion of a URL, I mean, it's basically a way to call a piece of information, but you don't know where that information is uh, necessarily. You just have a unique way of calling it. Are there other aspects of this particular paper on microservices that we haven't covered that you think are important? I think maybe one thing that we could we could talk a little bit about is the relationship between how mi- how microservices might fit into this ecosystem that we're mm-hmm. talking about, where there's lots of you know investment in commons environments and cloud platforms. So we we talked a little bit about that um, because it in a way I think we've sort of set this we've the way we've been talking about it you sort of see microservices kind of the opposite of those in yeah. some sense. And I, I guess in some sense they are, but but not really. It's not like these are two competing ideas. It's, it, you know, in another way, you could view microservices as the foundation of cloud platforms or of commons systems. It just, there's lots of ways to build this kind of commons environment. And so maybe one of the questions is just how do we build it? Because you can, and people do, build a commons environment completely out of microservices. And if those microservices are also kind of made available externally, right, and are reusable and can be used for other um, things, then other platforms will, it will be much easier to integrate them, right? You suddenly made me think of an app store that you've got all of these simple applications, well, they're not all simple, but applications that are available from one place and you can go and choose one you just don't, and then you actually have to download it and run it but if you were running it within that environment that commons environment you know that as as opposed to taking it away and running it 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 strikes me as the same kind of thing you just have to have the ability to resolve and find the microservice that you want yeah yeah the nice thing about that is that um, if people are sharing components like that then whatever features are that rely on those components will will kind of inherently work together Mm. then. Mm. And so so in in this sense, microservices aren't the opposite of platforms. I mean, in fact, they're just an an alternative way to implement the goal of the platforms, right? But in a way that would encourage rather than, than make difficult, right, the communication across platforms. Yeah. So I, I, I take, I really set the stage badly for that in the beginning. Um, but I, you know, I've come around completely to the, the point of view that you just uh, explained. And I, you know, hopefully this is uh, really useful to our students and others who are thinking about systems as it relates to, uh, you know, what goes on in data science. Um, so Nathan, what do you think would be the disadvantages of microservices? The big, I think, r- maybe argument against using microservices is that is the lack of the potential lack of stability, because the the problem with us, I mean, the nice thing about a kind of monolithic thing where you control everything, right, is that you control everything, and so you can make sure it all works. Whereas if you start to you know farm out pieces of that to to you know an external microservice or or whatever right to something then now you're sort of reliant on that for success right so a system built out of microservices might crash if one of those services fails see 
So I think that there's a, I think there's a justifiable argument against building systems in this way that relies on, you know, that basically says, well, you might lose some stability. And I mean, I, I sort of, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think the counter to that, the, again, I come back to the App Store notion that you, there's basically a standardization that goes on. I mean, to get into the store or to start with, you have to comply to, in a certain way. Yeah. Right? So if you have a microservice, uh, you know, if you had some level of agreement across disciplines and so forth, that this was going to be some standardized features of microservices. The chances are that they're going to exist for a lot longer and be, you know, continue to be reusable uh, is, is, is clearly going to be there. Yeah. I, I think another way to think about that is like you kind of have to see who's providing, who's providing the service. Like if it's coming, if it's got some like vetting, yeah. basically, then, so I, I mean, I think essentially what you're saying is we just have to make sure that the links stay active. Like, Right, yeah. I think as long as that's sort of the the point, I guess. As long as you do that, then I think you solve that major problem. But I think it is a reasonable challenge. So you know, if we're proposing a system where whoever wants to just goes out there and oh, launch your tool as a microservice, and then other people start to rely on that, then I mean, you're well aware yeah. of the yeah. you know the state of a lot of bioinformatics software. Dead in the water. Well, yeah, yeah, it's just like the way it's developed and, you know, but people move on. And You made me think about, you know, you can never get away with these things without talking about incentives. And the, the incentive for develop, putting something in the app store is, is quite often financial. But the incentive for putting, for creating a microservice, say, in, you know, in genomics or in more, more generally in biomedicine, uh, ultimately, you know, you can measure the usage of that microservice. And if that was credited appropriately, and that's to say we're not really doing a good enough job with software in accreditation right now, or in credit, crediting the authors. But that's starting to change. And then this is kind of a whole new world order. It's sort of like a micro-credit, micro potentially. Yeah. Um, but well, that's, uh, I mean, you bring up a really good point. And I think that's part of what's driven investment in in more self-contained systems is that it's a lot easier to kind of sell something that's big and does lots of things and now I can now a lot of people want to use it and now I can get funding for it whereas if you're working on like just something that does just this very small thing people might you know you don't get the credit you don't get the you know the reviewers aren't interested in that nobody's heard of it so there's it's there's a social aspect here yeah. like so you bring up I think a good point which is how would you incentivize microservices? So that's another challenge, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it all, it's all tied into how we think about uh, the scholarly output uh, or you know, what, whatever output it is in academia. It's really scholarly output. That's no longer just papers. It's clearly good data sets. It's software. It's, work, it's protocols. It's workflows. It's a whole variety of things that... I would say that in the School of Data Science, we are um, pretty adamant on uh, recognizing those as important scholarly products uh, up there with papers and, uh, and other things. So, um, you know, that, that, but it's a cultural shift. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's harder to it, count those things, yeah, right? Yeah. So. Um, yes. The metrics for it and the, and the evaluation of it are, are still very problematic. Oh, well, this has been fascinating. Um, so congratulations again on the paper. Uh, it's clearly, Thank you. Uh, I think we've come around to the notion that 
and microservices and platforms and commonses and clouds. Uh, you know, that's all part of a system-wide ecosystem. Uh, the winners and losers uh, are yet to be established. But clearly, as you pointed out right in the beginning, the, uh, the environments are changing, they're changing rapidly. And I think uh, data scientists really need to keep up uh, with those changes uh, and be prepared to take the maximum advantage. So Nathan Sheffield, thank you very much for yeah. uh, speaking with us today. Yeah. Thank you, and thanks for the invitation. Great. Thanks for the contribution your contributions to the paper and also thanks for the invitation to you know chat about it for a few minutes here all right thank you bye-bye thanks for checking out this week's episode we have a link to the paper nathan and phil discuss in the show notes we'll be back on december 1st with a conversation in the area of analytics but keep an eye out for a bonus episode in the meantime if you'd like to learn more about the uva school of data science visit us at datascience.virginia.edu and if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at uvadatapoints at virginia.edu. We'll see you next time.